Kyle Ledbetter, as we record here on Wednesday, March 23rd, would you rather have universal respect or unlimited power? Uh, No, I would rather have unlimited power because unlimited power means I could do a lot of good with the world. Universal respect, I don't really care what other people think about me. Although I, I enjoy respect, I hope I carry myself in a way that garners respect. But uh, universal power, I'd like to have the ability to do good in the world. I feel though you could be powerful and not really respect. I feel like universal respect could grant you a level of power to walk into every conversation to walk into any room and have a little bit of respect and people listen to what you're saying is a power even in itself. And I I think that that's why I think I'm going with universal respect because I think by virtue of having respect, you're granted power. And I'm thinking more, how are people going to remember me as this all seeing God with unlimited power? Or is this person that they respected every conversation, every interaction with? So I myself, I'm going with respect and my power hungry co-host Kyle Ledbetter, unlimited power. Slumpbusters, let us know in the comments below. Would you rather have universal respect or unlimited power? Drop that in a five-star review as well. It is time for the random sports fact of the week. Wow, did you know that? Now live on the Slumpbuster Podcast, random sports fact of the week. March is one of the greatest times of year to be a basketball fan, but even non-fans get in on the madness. How hard is it to fill out a perfect bracket? According to the NCAA, one in 9.2 quintillion chances. If you know a little bit about basketball, that improves to a chance of one in 120 billion. Obviously, with odds that low, no one has ever completed a perfect bracket. Greg Nigel set a record for predicting the first 49 games correctly in 2019, losing his streak in overtime sweet 16 upset by Purdue. Things more likely than predicting a perfect bracket include winning an Oscar, one in 10,000, being crushed by a meteorite, one in 700,000, a roulette wheel landing on the same number seven straight times, one in three billion. Warren Buffett offers a billion dollars every year for those that can complete a perfect bracket. Warren, you probably better serve using that money for meteor insurance. The Slumpbuster Podcast. The Slumpbuster Podcast. The first quarter starts now. The quarterback carousel continues to spin this offseason. Matt Ryan was traded to the Colts on Monday for a third-round pick. Ryan has played his entire career in Atlanta since being drafted in 2008. He won an MVP with the team in 2016, led Atlanta to its second-ever Super Bowl appearance. Indianapolis will have their seventh quarterback in seven years with Matt Ryan, their seventh week one starting quarterback, a trend that started with the surprise retirement of Andrew Luck in 2019. Kyle, you often refer to Matt Ryan as a rotting corpse. Will the move to Indianapolis do that body some good? The rotting corpse of Matt Ryan. Thank you for bringing that up. I love saying it every time we bring it up. The rotting corpse of Matt Ryan. He's kind of like zombified now. Now he's kind of like a football zombie, I would say. I would say that he is one hit away from being Ben Roethlisberger. And fortunately, he's going to a team that has some measure of an offensive line. So he will avoid that hit for as long as he possibly can. Because it's just one. It's just one away from being Ben Roethlisberger. Ben Roethlisberger 
injured his elbow and was never the same. Matt Ryan's like that one knee or arm injury away from never being the same. And fortunately, the Colts can milk one year out of him before they inevitably need to find another quarterback next year. Now, technically, Matt Ryan's under contract for two seasons at a roughly 28 and $21 million cap hit. But if the Colts so choose, they can move off of Matt Ryan next year with very minimal penalty. And uh, I'm very fascinated from the Colts standpoint of it. But from the Matt Ryan standpoint, he got to pick the place he wanted to go. And he picked a pretty good place to ride out the last couple of years of his career. It's kind of like Matthew Stafford deciding he wanted to go play in LA, not as shiny as the glitz and glamour of Los Angeles, obviously. But Matt Ryan going to Indianapolis is certainly a team in which he has a chance to compete. Now, the one thing I will push back on and doing a little bit of research into the Indianapolis Colts and what this would mean for Matt Ryan, PFF actually had the Colts as a mid-level offensive line. So they were graded 12 overall. But did you know that PFF had them as the 30th graded pass blocking offensive line? They actually allowed the most quarterback hits in 2021. Now, I will grant you that Quinn and Nelson missed four games last year, but that still is such a striking mark of a team that we kind of view as, again, one of the solid offensive lines. You don't even think about them getting hit. I've heard this theory thrown out there that Carson Wentz makes offensive lines worse. The Philadelphia Eagles also had a pretty damn good offensive line, but those last couple years of Carson Wentz, you start to notice, oh, this offensive line might not be as good as we thought. Now Jalen Hurts is there and you're like, okay, maybe the Philadelphia Eagles do have a good offensive line again. The Colts, could that be another similar story? Like Matt Ryan, who's more of a timing pocket passer, not going to ad lib as much. Is he going to make sure that that offensive line produces at a better clip this season? So I'm glad that you brought up QB hits and QB pressures as stats for sure, because Carson Wentz falls into the same camp as Russell Wilson in that QB hits and QB sacks are not offensive line stats. They are quarterback stats. You can throw the ball away as a quarterback. If you take sacks, it's on the quarterback. It's not on the offensive line. It's on the quarterback. Russell Wilson like led the league in sacks like every year, and that's on the quarterback. It's the same thing with Joe Burrow where Joe Burrow takes a lot of sacks. His offensive line wasn't great, but he also holds onto the ball too long and he gets sacked and hit a lot. Now he has less time than other quarterbacks as well, but that's besides the point there. Carson Wentz does make your offensive line worse. I'm not sure if it's 30th in pass blocking, but I guess when we say the Colts have a strong offensive line, it's the Colts have Quentin Nelson and Quentin Nelson could retire tomorrow and have a first ballot Hall of Fame resume. Like he's been in the league four years no. and has made all pro no. three times. Well, go like, First team all pro three times. He's not getting Sandy Koufax treatment. He's not at Luke Keekly levels yet. Three first team all pros. Like Richard Seymour just got in the Hall of Fame with two. But Luke (laughs) Keekly was was good too. And Luke Keekly, he at least had an eight year career. Four year career, you still have some work to do. I'm sorry. There's sure. Okay. He he can just he has to hit the bare minimum threshold to make it. Like okay, he plays six years, he'll make the Hall of Fame. He could do nothing the rest of his career. If it takes you five years post retirement to get get into the hall of fame i think you have to at least play let's say five years not that it's a set standard but i think that that is a reasonable okay. measure but it, we're not here to talk about quinn and nelson and his hall of fame resume we're here to talk about matt ryan and how this helps the colds uh the division you look around them i know you don't think much of tennessee tennessee had some movement this offseason they let go of julio jones which julio was just never a big move for them julio was, was a big move in principle last season i remember talking to our friend steezy about it and it, he called it the pick your poison off and it just never materialized. It looks like the Titans were drinking some poison because they were one of the most injured teams on offense last year. Insert Robert Woods. Will that make the offense better? Well, it's really going to depend on if Ryan Tannehill makes any level of improvement. Look at the Jags. Doug Peterson's first year there. 
He's still improving. He has to fix his team or undo whatever mess that they've filled that Urban Meyer left over for him. And then Houston is a team in an interesting spot. Now they have some draft picks to work with tanking. because of the Deshaun Watson trade. I don't think they're quite tanking anymore. I think tanking was really last year. I think now they're going to try and build off it. I don't underrate Lovey Smith as much as you do. I, I still look at him as a coach that brought a Chicago Bears team to a Super Bowl and is at least a professional guy. I, I think you might see some improvement there. The question for them is always just going to be like Davis Mills. What are they going to get out of him? Uh, Davis Mills, there's some believers, there's some doubters. The answer probably lies somewhere in between on where Davis's ability is going to become. I can look at the Colts though. I can look at the Colts and say last year, they should have been in the playoffs. I can't believe they were not in the playoffs. I can't believe they lost a week 18 game against the Jacksonville Jaguars to miss the playoffs. I was praising Carson Wentz, 27 touchdowns, seven interceptions. I thought he was having a great year, but even when you just look at those base numbers, the eye test would tell you, Carson Wentz, he just crumbles. He crumbles in these big moments. He has those left-handed spinning alley-oop throws that end up in the other person's arm for a pick six. And that's part of the problem with Carson Wentz. Matt Ryan isn't going to do that. Matt Ryan isn't that type of quarterback. Matt Ryan, while he's not flashy anymore, he's never had the biggest arm. He is a former league MVP for a reason. And that is because Matt Ryan can do what you ask him to do. One thing that has hurt Matt Ryan immensely the last couple of years in Atlanta, the fact that Atlanta has just not had a running game since 2016, his MVP year. <laughs> I, would, I would go a little further. I would just say Atlanta has not had talent since well, his MVP talent, season. That's part of it. That's part of the fact that they haven't had talent. They haven't had talent at the running back position. Devontae Freeman started to flatline after that season. Uh, Tevin Coleman wasn't the, quite the same guy. Oh, uh, yes. And then Tevin they never Coleman picked... missed their 18 carries yeah, and for And then they never yards. really picked up a running game beyond that. In fact, the Atlanta run game uh, has been horrible. They have been bottom half since 2017. In the last couple of seasons, they've been bottom five. And we talked about this a little bit off air. A good running game doesn't necessarily make you a good team, but it does hide any blemishes that your quarterback may have, any limitations that your quarterback may have. If you could just hide some of the blemishes of Matt Ryan at this point in his career, he's going to do enough to help you win ballgames. He's going to make one to two throws a game that are going to increase your odds of winning. And the Colts have that team. They just needed the right man at the ship, at least for two years. It's fine. You're acquiring another old guy. That's the big problem. You're acquiring another old guy. So even in best case scenario, how many years left can Matt Ryan give you? How many good years left can Matt Ryan give you? The Colts still have to almost look for a future quarterback, even while acquiring Matt Ryan. Okay. So in those four minutes that you broke down there, there was a lot of good stuff in there. So there's like three points that I'm trying to keep in my head to circle back to, because they were very good. Thanks, so man. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It was okay. So the first thing was the Titans and the Titans was interesting because I don't, I'm not necessarily down on the Titans. I think the Titans are so dependent on the success of Derrick Henry. And like the bet would be a mid twenties running back coming off of a major leg injury when he's had like 400 carries the last two seasons. Like the bet is to say the Titans are going to get worse. Now, Derrick Henry is like the super freak of super freak running backs and and he has defied all the rules of the running back position. So like, it's possible that it works out, but it's just not as good of a bet as saying the Chiefs, Chargers, Broncos, Raiders, unfortunately, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Baltimore, Cincinnati, Buffalo, and now Miami have all also gotten better as well. You know, last year they were the sixth best team in the AFC. And so I assume some of those teams will jump the Tennessee Titans. This division feels like the most easy to pick like non NFC East or NFC South. Like it seems like 
Colts, Titans, Jaguars, Texans is how this thing is stacked up because rare is the division where one team is in like each category of NFL teams. Like there's the Super Bowl contenders, there's the above average teams, there's the below average teams, and then there's the tanking teams. And I'm not saying the Colts are like Super Bowl contender good, but we both kind of agree. Like we could have seen the Colts doing what the Bengals did last year. Like the Colts were as good as them. Oh, oh yeah. You know, and I never even got to expand on this take. I wanted to bring this up last season, but obviously the Colts blew their last two games. If they made it in the playoffs, I would have picked them almost as a dark horse Super Bowl team. Not saying it would have happened, but I could have saw them as dark horse, as much of a dark horse as the Cincinnati Bengals were. But because of the last two weeks, what, what, what can I do? Yeah, it, it, it all it fell apart there. <laughs> but this one feels pretty clear because it feels like each one is in a different tier. Like the Titans are now like ninth or 10th best team in the AFC. Jaguars are going to go six and 11. Like they signing those players makes them better. It just doesn't make them good enough to actually compete because mid-level free agents are not enough to make you a competitive football team. And then the Texans are going for the number one pick. I don't care if what the organization wants to do. They're so bad that they're going to have a top four pick in the draft. I'm not sure if it's going to be number one, but they're so bad that they're going to have a top four pick in the NFL draft for Bryce blow for Bryce suck for Stroud, whatever you want to do it. I like when it's B and S because those are easy ones to do or lose for Lawrence, little situations like that. But that part was interesting. The other part that was interesting that you mentioned many, many times back, I'm trying to circle back to is Matt Ryan does throw interceptions at a pretty high rate. It's just, he doesn't have the volatility of a Carson Wentz. Like the joke with Matt Ryan is that he underthrows everybody. And as much as we don't admit it, the Colts don't have a great wide receiver core. I know people like Michael Pittman. I know he was a fantasy hero for me, but the Colts so, don't a have big a good body. receiving core. He's a big body, you know, and he's more of a red zone threat than Julio ever was. That's true, but that's a low bar to hit. Like a low bar, Julio at the end for the Falcons as a red zone threat is a low bar to hit. That doesn't necessarily mean that your questions are solved there. So yeah, their their game is going to be built on running the football. They're in a similar position to the Titans where they're going to just use the holy hell out of Jonathan Taylor while he's still on the rookie contract. And if they had Andrew Luck, they wouldn't use the holy hell out of Jonathan Taylor. They would throw the ball more. They would get more receivers, kind of like what the Dolphins have done, even though I don't know if that's going to work out for them trading for Tyreek Hill. They're doing what the personnel says they should do. And the personnel says we should probably run the ball more because we have maybe the best running back in the NFL who is still only 22 years old and we can destroy his body and go, you know, run the ball for 1,500 yards. Here's what I'll say about Matt Ryan in relation to the Colts. And I said this about Jimmy Garoppolo, I think last week or two weeks ago in relation to if he would have got traded to the Colts. He just needs to be as good as Philip Rivers was two years ago. If he's that version of quarterback for them, then I think they'll be fine. You mentioned last year, throughout the year even, that had certain things broke down in that Buffalo Bills game, Philip Rivers would lead the Colts to a playoff victory. And I think that's probably what the Colts are asking for from Matt Ryan this year. Can you at least win us a playoff game? Can we get into the playoffs? And can you at least win us one? I think obviously every team is in a pursuit of a Super Bowl. I don't think that's necessarily the Colts this year. And I don't think that the Colts are necessarily asking Matt Ryan to be that quarterback this year. But if you could at least get us into the playoffs, that's an improvement. And if I'm Frank Reich and I'm on the hot seat, I need to get into the playoffs and I need to win in the playoffs. So this is the fascinating part for me of why I'm so fascinated by the Colts organization, because more than any other team, the Colts run their organization differently than everyone else in the league. You know how the joke every year we make is the Colts are always top five in cap space every year. The Colts only sign one year contracts. They only get 
big time players for one year so that they are never locked into poor contracts. Now, Darius Leonard, they'll sign him to a five-year deal because he's Darius Leonard. Quentin Nelson, they'll sign him to a five-year deal because he's Quentin Nelson. DeForest Buckner, five-year contract. Those guys are special good players, but they aren't alluded to the fact that in free agency, it's always good to have flexibility because teams almost always end up regretting those four or five-year long-term contracts, whether it be, you know, we joke every year about the Jaguars spending $200 million in free agency or the Patriots spending last year or the Jets or the Lions or the Giants. Someone spends a ton of money in free agency. They get better the first year and then they have no cap space the rest of the way. The Colts signed Devin Funches to one-year contracts. They signed, well, they traded for Unique Ngakwe, which is essentially a one-year $13 million contract. If you look at the contract language, it's basically they can cut him for no penalty next year. It's basically a one-year $13 million contract. They signed T.Y. Hilton this last year to a one-year contract. They seem to always value the flexibility of cap space. And I think the reason for that is they don't have any other players worthy of giving the money to. They gave it to Andrew Luck and then Andrew Luck retired. I think if they had Andrew Luck, they would go all in to try and win a championship. But because in 2018, they were the first team to draft two all-pro rookie teammates since Dick Butkus and Gale Sayers with Darius Leonard in the second round, Quentin Nelson in the first round. Because they have that core, they're building something sustainable, but unfortunately, they just haven't gotten the quarterback to build such a sustainable team yet. Or, I mean, like an Aaron Donald type also suffices. But more specifically, they haven't gotten the quarterback in the last four years. That'll take them from being a team that loses to the Chiefs and Bills of the world to a team that can compete with the Chiefs and Bills of the world. And the question that I have there is just like what their pathway to a quarterback is or a sustainable long-term option at quarterback. I'd love to say hook them horns and say Sam Ellinger is the next solution there at quarterback, but that's frankly not going to be the case. Uh, you look at this year's offseason transactions at quarterback, uh, Aaron Rodgers deciding to stay in Green Bay was probably the big wild card for them because obviously buddies, Pat McAfee knows Jim Ursay. Who knows? Maybe that could have been a connection that I could saw happening if Aaron Rodgers wasn't opposed to staying in the Midwest. Russell Wilson deciding to go with Denver. You figured Denver was going to make a hard push at a quarterback. One way or the other, they've been putting their cards on the table that we're going to make a transaction like this for years. Matthew Stafford deciding he wanted to go to sunny Los Angeles instead of staying in the Midwest. Again, another move that you understand geographically, he just wanted to go to that location. And that's fine because you get to go with a talented Hall of Fame head coach in Sean McVay. And then you look at the last major chip, Deshaun Watson. And in the division, I know you say always go for the best trade you possibly get, but the Houstons don't want to see Deshaun Watson in their division consistently year after year, because while they're tanking right now, they want to get better. They want to be like every other franchise and get better. They want to get back to the playoffs. And if Deshaun Watson is constantly impeding your pursuit of even winning your division, that that is not a long-term recipe for success, especially because Deshaun Watson, if he st- keeps his nose clean for the next decade, he's going to be in the league for a long time. The Houston Texans don't want any part of that. So th- there's a problem there and they're good. Th- that's another problem. It's almost a problem that they're good because they'll never be at the top part of the draft to also get one of those elite guys. Unless they do something drastic like the 49ers did, trade multiple first round picks. Which they tried up. to do last year. That was underreported. They tried to trade for the number three pick in the draft, but they couldn't 
get up there because they had the 21 pick in the draft and they traded it for Carson Wentz before. Before they got Carson Wentz in February, they tried to trade for the number three pick in the draft and they just couldn't get there. So they've tried every option possible to get that quarterback and every single time they get denied. Why? Because if you take away the quarterback position, the Colts have like the 12th best roster in the NFL. And so they keep every year attracting the 12th best quarterback in the NFL. It's Philip Rivers. It's Carson Wentz. It's Matt Ryan. They just keep attracting tier three quarterbacks and they keep losing to the teams that have tier one quarterbacks and also the Jacksonville Jaguars. And it's so interesting that mostly they keep getting these veterans. They keep getting the Phil Rivers types. They keep getting a Matt Ryan type. When are they going to get like a young guy that they could just try and work with? Hell, if they would have went out there and got Jameis and see what that turned into, that might've been something because at least Jameis Bare minimum, you said he's a talented guy. Actually, that's a big indictment on Carson Wentz. Now, the more I think about it, you actually went out there and got a young guy or a guy that had a promising future, at least when we thought about him in 2017. And you said after a year, we can't stand this guy. Not only can we not win with this guy, we can't stand this guy and we can't get him out soon enough. And that's going to be a thing that I think is going to follow Carson Wentz around for the entire rest and of his And also career, Frank Wright, because- it. Yes, the- and Frank Wright, yes, because they had that connection. They were two guys- They had the same Bible verse. They shared that, that connection. They were connected at the hip in Philly. I vouch for this guy. I'm going to the owner and I'm going to vouch for this guy. And apparently Frank Reich reportedly apologized to the owner and Chris Ballard that he vouched for Carson Wentz. So if you're Frank Reich, you hope this Matt Ryan thing works because you are on the hottest of hot seats, buddy. I don't care. If you get to the playoffs, I don't think that's going to be good enough for Jim Irsay because he's a good owner, but not a great owner. I would say he's somewhat meddlesome enough to cause issues for a team, but he's also doesn't get in the way of this team being a competitive roster either. Uh, Jim Irsay is somewhere in the middle. If we're tier ranking NFL owners, I would say he's about a mid-tier owner and that's fine. Jim Mercy, at least, you know, he's a personality and I'm watching this documentary about the Lakers. He, he's kind of like a Jerry Buss type, really. And that's fine. sort of just Jerry Buss with more alcoholism. It feels like with with Jim Mercy, which I feel bad about joking about alcoholism. But when it's Jim Mercy, it's a little more OK, I suppose. But even hey, still, I, hey, I think Kyle, that I'll drink to that. That was a good joke. I, I I would give a little chuckle to that. But the, to the uh-huh. point about the Colts, like the thing that they've done is they haven't locked themselves into like I really respect the restraint of the Colts to be like we value sustainability above all else. And every single stopgap guy they've gotten, whether it's Brissett, whether it's Philip Rivers, whether it's Carson Wentz, now Matt Ryan, they're all one year contracts. All of the contracts are set up now. They got Carson Wentz for two years. And fortunately, yeah. like they took Wentz wasn't less. supposed to be the stopgap. He was supposed to be the guy. He was supposed to be yeah, the guy. And <laughs> they set it up to protect themselves two years and they took less on the trade in order to have Washington take him. They only got two thirds for Carson, which makes it more insane that the Falcons got one third for Matt Ryan. If two thirds is what you're getting for Carson Wentz, but I assume the Colts are taking all $40 million of that contract. So it changes the math a little bit there because now they use that open cap space to get Matt Ryan. They essentially traded Carson Wentz for Matt Ryan and a third round pick. And, you know, that seems kind of fair, right? Like Carson Wentz for Matt Ryan in the third round pick is a trade most of us would make. Like they're kind of similar quarterbacks in that respect. You might get the boom of Carson Wentz every now and then, but, you know, that's basically what they're worth. It's Carson Wentz and a shitty contract for Matt Ryan's shitty contract and a third round pick. And it makes the Colts no better or no worse. But I think that will still be good enough for them to make the playoffs only in a universe where someone has to make the playoffs from the godforsaken AFC South. And I've made the same joke for six years. The AFC South exists to get the four seed, play a 
meaningless game on ESPN that very few people will watch and they will lose to a five seed who probably should have won their division. These guys are on fire. Let's hear more. Second quarter starts now. You may have heard, but the Cleveland Browns have been making significant noise this offseason. This comes after a 2021 season where the Browns were picked as a preseason Super Bowl contender by even some mainstream pundits. Perhaps our first big trade of the year came when the Browns acquired Amari Cooper from the Dallas Cowboys, but that seems like peanuts after Deshaun Watson waived his no-trade clause to move to the land. Of course, Deshaun's arrival means former first-round pick Baker Mayfield is set for a departure. Joining us to discuss all things Cleveland, Jeff Lloyd of Locked On Browns, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Jeff, think you've had enough to time to process kind of the March Madness version of the Cleveland Browns? Um, <laughs> it's been crazy. Um, you know, obviously the Amari Cooper move to start things off and basically getting themselves a player that they felt was going to be unattainable if it got to the point where he was released and he was a free agent. Um, and then you get to basically the, you know, the courtship, basically, you know, trying to jump in the DM, so to speak of Deshaun Watson, trying to get his attention and then getting a meeting with him and making it sounding like it didn't go very well. Then when he narrowed his list down to four, when he narrowed it down to three, the Browns were the first team out. Browns went to work and said, you know what, we're going to keep Chisholm at this if we can make this a monetary thing that maybe he can't refuse we're certainly going to give our attempt to do that and I think they got themselves to that point where it was as far as a contract and you know Deshaun Watson's people are saying that other teams offered about the same type of guaranteed money I think I can believe that but if we're talking if it's the Atlanta Falcons or the New Orleans Saints you take Baker Mayfield out of the equation for the Cleveland Browns and you insert Deshaun Watson into the equation do the Browns become then the most you know nicest looking option of the three I have to say yes and I think when they sat down and realized that the money was too good to pass up and they physically looked and opened their eyes a little bit more to the situation with the Cleveland Browns they said you want to know what this probably is the best destination of the ones that you know we think we want to go to you mentioned it it whittled down to three there was just New Orleans there was Atlanta there was the Cleveland Browns so when we recorded our podcast last week I wasn't even thinking about the Cleveland Browns the Cleveland Browns were the furthest thing on my radar what was your instant reaction when that trade went through uh, honestly, was like how? Because I mean, you know, this is you know, you get told no something three times in a row. Most people are usually done. You know, usually that's enough for you. Okay, no, all right, we've been told no three different times. This is over. But you know, I think the Browns they went to their ownership, and I think they went to you know how much, mo- how are, far are you willing to go monetarily? Because we think we're still in this, even though nobody in the national media believes that we are, which was the case because I don't think anybody really had this. They had that the Browns had interest, but once you get told no, no, no. And you hear this from all the major outlets. You just assume it's over with. Um, But I'm assuming they got ownership to say, hey, you need to go as far as you need to go. We'll guarantee the money. If you guys are telling us this is the right move, we'll, you know, we're okay with it. We'll okay it. And I think that's where it got to. And then once it came to the point where, you know, Watson's camp realized that they were going to, you know, not just get out of Houston, but we're going to greatly benefit financially. I think that was it. And that that's where it came to, you know, fruition four o'clock, about four o'clock Friday afternoon, you know, basically the hammer dropped and Deshaun Watson had decided you know, he was going to waive his no trade clause. The Houston Texans were good with it. And Deshaun Watson's, you know, headed to the, you know, to the Cleveland to be a Brown. So trading for Deshaun Watson clearly carries a, a moral quandary for a lot of Browns fans. He is still facing a civil suit for 22 counts of sexual harassment and sexual misconduct. So how do you feel about the moral and ethical decision that Browns fans are having to make right now when, you know, they didn't ask for this decision to come on and the franchise, you know, still went ahead and traded for Deshaun Watson? 
It's actually funny the way you're kind of phrasing this, because I literally just, you know, got off of responding to a tweet a few minutes ago. And, you know, it was basically from a fan who said, yo, I think I'm done. And this is, I think, somebody in his 60s. So, I mean, you know, we're talking about, you know, a 60-year relationship, basically since the inception of the Cleveland Browns. And, you know, my response was to him, I understand you're not the only one. And I hate that you were put into this situation. And this, my initial tweet when this all went down on Friday was, you know, if you're excited, I get it. If you're indifferent to the whole thing, I get it. And if you're pissed... I get it. Um, you know, Browns fans, this is a lot of range of emotions right here. Yes, you understand, you know, your team got better at the quarterback position. You got one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL to agree to come play for your team. But it, there's a lot to it. Look, if these incidents hadn't gone on, Deshaun Woodson probably would have never been available. You know, he, maybe he would have continued on in Houston. You know, they would have been able to turn you know things around in there, become, you know, a, a much better franchise. Um, but for fans, you know, look, I, I truly understand. There's certain players in sports. And look, I understand that there's part of a fan base out there anywhere that says, you want to know what? The league doesn't care. Team doesn't care. Why should I care? But there are a lot of people out there who, you know, carry themselves, you know, try to be as morally correct as they can. Me, I am a father. I have two daughters who are teenagers. Um, You know, this type of behavior is, you know, for me, kind of unacceptable, but I'm paid to do this. This is a job. You don't get to choose the assignment you are given. Um, You know, you basically play the hand you are dealt. And my listeners know where I stand on things like this. I wasn't a huge fan of the Kareem Hunt move a few years ago. I think you can build a team and a competitive team and a great team without having going down the avenue of said players like this. But, you know, that being said, you know, for me, I'd like to know, you know, the Browns said they do did their due diligence. You know, you know, like when the teacher used to ask you to show your homework, I'd like to see the Browns show their homework what what in their due diligence made them feel more comfortable about doing this than you know maybe most of america we're still waiting on a decision from the nfl regarding deshaun's playing status for next year assuming deshaun gets suspended let's say eight games i'm comparing this to like antonio brown i'm comparing this to like ezekiel alia what we know their suspensions ended up coming out to be does that mean the browns still have an opportunity to compete for a championship in 2022 because obviously eight games of jacoby Brissett is also factored into that equation well, the, the key would be is, you know, what you can do within those eight games. Can you tread water? Can you go four and four? Um, that's a huge part of it. The other part of it is when are these division games scheduled? Two with Cincinnati, huge. Two with Baltimore, huge. Not really sure where Pittsburgh is going to be just yet, but you can't rule out any team that's coached by Mike Tomlin. So part of that's also going to be the way the schedule falls. I mean, if, you know, most of your division games are within, you know, those last nine regular season games, that's certainly beneficial to the Browns. Um, as far as a length of suspension, I'm not really sure. Um, you know, Kareem Hunt, you mentioned a couple of things. Kareem Hunt, it was an eight-game suspension for him a few years ago when uh, he began his, began his Browns career. And that's just another one that kind of has some Browns fans triggered because you made this move. You know, you obviously have a lot invested into this, and you have no idea when your quarterback is actually going to be available to play for you. So, you know, another, another pill that's difficult to swallow as far as digesting this entire thing as a whole. Well, you mentioned the Browns doing their due diligence around the situation. And obviously, Andrew Barry and Kevin Stefanski and Jimmy Haslam made their statements afterwards, which had some, you know, lawyerism speak in it. And <laughs> they, they talked about doing their investigative homework. And it looks like Watson's not going to have to answer for this, or at least the Browns are going to protect him from answering. So do you think that in that event that Andrew Barry and Kevin Stefanski have an obligation to speak more on this situation and speak more to the due diligence the Browns did? Well, the first things first is I don't know if Deshaun Watson 
can physically say anything right now. I mean, you know, legally wise, what would your, your lawyer say? You, you know, you, you can go to this press conference, but oh, you, you know what I'm saying? I don't think there's anything Deshaun Watson can truly say here while you still have 22 pending lawsuits of this nature. So certainly that is difficult. You look for Andrew Berry. I mean, he's a father. Kevin Stefanski, he's a father. These guys are married. I mean, we would like to hear something from somebody and not just that, you know, we, we went through it, you know, and apparently, you know, some teams were involved with investigators to the situation. You know, I would assume the Browns who seem like a very, very intelligent, you know, run organization right now. I'm assuming they went that route, but you know, fans are going to want to hear something. Media is going to want to hear something because everything we know to this point, this situation does not look good, even though he's not going to get charges essentially pressed against him. Um, and as anybody knows, you can kind of get a ham sandwich indicted at times. There's, there's a lot of answers to be had here. Um, and there, it's not like, you know, enough of this fan base is blind to the fact that they got a better quarterback. They're, they're going to ignore it. There's truly answers to be had. You guys said by doing your due diligence, you feel comfortable about it. So that means then you had information that we didn't. Then what is that information? You basically have to show your hold cards. One thing I found fascinating about this trade was it was six draft picks. And now when Houston was first putting it out there, what they wanted back in a Deshaun Watson trade, they mentioned multiple first round draft picks and two established guys, guys that can help them right now. But again, they ended up settling just for draft picks. What do you think about the trade as a whole? Do you think the Browns managed to escape? They got the better of the Texans in that sense, not having to give up anyone that could help them in this coming year or next year? That was key for this because the Browns important in looking in this was, you know, basically what they told Baker Mayfield is, you know, we think we want to go up another level, you know, another level as far as skill to quarterback. They had told him names like Aaron Rodgers, laughable, never coming. Told him names like Russell, Russell Wilson. He was never coming to Cleveland. For Deshaun Watson, the situation was different. Um, He was not in a position where, you know, yes, he held the cards, but not really as much due to the fact that he was trying to essentially get back into uh, you know the league, get back into a position to be playing again. For them, the defense and it's one of the things that got overlooked in what was a bad year last year. The defense really, really grew. And they have a lot of young players on that defense, a lot of talented young players. Um, they did not want to give up a player like Greg Newsom. They did not want to give up a player like Jer- Jeremiah Wusukoromoa. What they felt is upgrade the quarterback position, but stay status quo. Um, they were able to do it. I think maybe that's part of why this, you know, the final draft pick got put in on Monday, which was they were also giving up their, the Browns were giving up their fourth round pick this year, pick 107. That hadn't been mentioned all weekend long by either team. But again, at that point, the Browns were so committed that wasn't going to hold anything up. But the Browns felt it was key to try to keep the roster intact and just upgrade the quarterback position. Well, speaking of everything surrounding the Cleveland Browns, that's not this moral conflicting, depressing situation. They did cut Jarvis Landry and cut JC Treader. They swapped backup quarterbacks. And then obviously you mentioned earlier, traded for Amari Cooper at the beginning of the free agency cycle. So what did you make of everything else that the Browns did around the obvious Deshaun Watson situation? Well, I mean, when you, you make these two moves for Cooper and Watson, obviously you give up draft, draft assets. Both of these players come in and take up you know a lot of cap space. They were able to maneuver Cooper's uh, contract to create cap space for themselves. Um, but it takes you out of you know draft all of a sudden. You know it was you know obviously a lot of draft work. Um, now when you talk, their first pick is at forty four. They were scheduled to have nine picks. Now they have nine, but four of those picks are on uh, five of those picks are on day three. 
So you really can't be counting on as much from them. Um, you can get, if you get Jadavian Clowney done and brought back here, you basically have your starting 22 on the roster with some good depth at some positions. Um, it allows you maneuverability in the draft to just basically get some guys who are going to be, be fill-in pieces, maybe counted on later down the road. I think they've done a really, really solid point. You know, if you take the you know, Deshaun Watson off field out of the equation, I think they've done a really, really nice job. It's just a different way they did it this year. Obviously, they did it through two major trades as opposed to the first two years. It was through free agency in the draft. The last major chip to fall for the Browns this offseason, though, has to be what happens with Baker Mayfield. We're still trying to figure out where does he go? What do we do with Baker Mayfield? Are the Browns overplaying their hands? I've heard reports that they're still seeking a higher round draft pick for Baker where other teams. I mean, the positions are filling up. The starting jobs are filling up around the league. So at best, if I'm an NFL GM, I'm maybe offering what a fourth, a fifth, a sixth round pick. I'm not offering anything good for the Browns. What do you think happens with Baker? Uh, in terms of value, what value does he still have around the league? Well, the Browns, I, I, there's no way I believe that once they went this route um, and, and basically saying they wanted to put their eyes on you know the elite of the elite quarterback position, they totally understood that it was going to put them in a difficult position as far as what to do with Baker. Um, it certainly didn't help that, you know, I think that, you know, Jimmy Haslam uh, told Chris Mortensen they wanted an adult in the room and Chris Mortensen decided to tell the entire NFL landscape that. Um, so that right there, you absolutely take a huge major knock on trying to move on from Baker Mayfield. All that being said, I don't think the Browns care. If they wanted Deshaun Watson this bad they don't care about the situation they're in now if it comes down to it's this is the pick and okay we have no choice um, and, and it's part of the fact that you know basically you're going to put this pick into it and even though baker mayfield didn't go to houston you're going to view it that it was a trade that involved baker mayfield and whatever pick comes back if i'm them i'm calling seattle I'm calling Carolina every single day. But keep in mind, Carolina, Seattle, these teams both hold a top 10 selection in this year's draft. Maybe there are quarterbacks that they have their eyes on. And the other problem is, is Baker Mayfield has one year of control. I mean, I know people want to say, oh, well, there's two years after this, you know, because they can always, uh, you know, franchise tag them. If we can't get more than a day three pick for Baker Mayfield, nobody is going to pick up a franchise tag on Baker Mayfield. So it's it's a lot of issue with all of this with it. So, um, but for the Browns, look, I mean, whatever they can get, I, I don't think they're going to care at this point, even if it's going to look crazy that they traded a former number one overall pick for a day three pick, fifth, sixth, whatever it may be. It's just that he's got to go. How do you think Baker Mayfield is going to be remembered in Cleveland? This is where it gets really, really interesting because there are so many people. And if you go back one calendar year ago, as far as Brown's content, everybody was fine. You know, you saw the season they had, won a playoff game in Pittsburgh, took Kansas City almost 60 minutes uh, you know, before losing a tight one late and said, okay, here comes free agency. Here comes the draft. And what was that? Basically, the Browns had a lot, a lot of expectations for the 2021 season. Everybody seemed to, as a whole, turned on Baker Mayfield. For me, I, I understand he did not play well, but there is a major injury involved. And I don't know how much that impacted him. Nobody knows how much that impacted him. And, you know, basically somebody's going to get the finger pointed at him here. And it seems to be Baker Mayfield. But as you guys mentioned earlier, Odell Beckham Jr., no longer here. Jarvis Landry, no longer here. Austin Hooper, no longer here. He were, they were supposed to be the top three targets for Baker Mayfield in 2020, in 2021. It didn't work out. They threw everybody out of the building, got rid of them all. So yes, you want to point a finger at Baker Mayfield. That's fine. But nobody won here. They moved on from all four of them. For me, um, you know, I started covering the Browns with this podcast in 2017. Basically, most of the content was on Friday. We did a pregame show. The Browns are going to get their butts kicked this weekend. Here's why. Monday, we came back with the Browns got their butts kicked this weekend. Here's why. 
we did three days of draft coverage and then we went right back into pregame and postgame shows. Um, but now, I mean, for where he got this team, you know, 2018, where the team actually had respectability, a lot of expectations in 2019. Obviously, that didn't pan out. The ride that was 2020 um, and a lot of Browns fans, oh, well, this, you know, you know, the expectations is Super Bowls. And I get that. Um, yeah, the expectations is Super Bowls for a lot of cities. For the Browns, you, you basically start by climbing a ladder one ring at a time and getting basically to the playoffs was that wrong. So everybody, you know, I tease like maybe everybody kind of went from, you know, basically having, you know, beer, you know, basically a beer taste to a champagne taste. It's not fair that Baker Mayfield is going out of the city. Like he is a lot of the shots he is taking. It's not fair. He did a lot for this city, a lot for this franchise. This was a guy that showed up to anything you asked him for charity wise. There was a time last year in 2020, there was a Browns fan who was severely ill, dying from cancer. One of his last wishes it was go to you know, go to a Browns home game for the last time with his friends. Not only did they, they sat in Baker Mayfield's box. They sat with Baker's wife. Baker and his wife drove him home after the game. You know, for me, the way it's going down like this and the way he's going out, it doesn't sit right for me for all the accomplishments that he did do for his time in the city. Seems like a lot of adult decisions there by Baker Mayfield. Well, Jeff Lloyd, thank you for coming on, man. Obviously, the Browns are going to be a huge story this year in the NFL. Amari, Deshaun all the moves that we talked about on this podcast and Baker Mayfield still to come locked on podcast network. Jeff, is there any other places we could find your work? Um, well, where we are with locked on now and the state of things from where we started to where we are, there's really not time for any, for much else for any of us. I mean, we've been, you know, it's just been a great job, you know, obviously by our owner and the team underneath him, you know, doing the work for us, you know, and obviously, you know, promoting our work, getting others to believe in our work. And it's just been a hell of a ride for me. I mean, I'll, you know, come September, this will be five years with locked on. This is going into my sixth year of coverage of the Browns. It's just been the wildest of rides. And I, I mean, I just enjoy every second of it. And basically what I tell everybody is, you know, it's basically, you know, be able to, uh, you know, make any money doing something that you're just truly passionate about. It makes, uh, you know, the rest of your life just go very, very easily. The Slumbuster guys are killing it. Half done. Third quarter is beginning now. I made comments earlier during this podcast that definitely went out over air. If I have hurt anyone out there, please suck it up. I pride myself and think of myself as a man of faith. And there's a drive into Philadelphia by Castellanos. That'll be a new contract. And so it'll be a five-year deal. I know I'm going to be putting on this headset again. I know it'll be for the slump buster. Castellanos memes aside, Kyle and Nick Castellanos is now a Philadelphia Philly. Trevor Story is the big story in Boston. And Carlos Correa is going to be taking the trash can up to the Twin Cities. What move from this week will pay the biggest dividends, Mr. Ledbetter? I really, really hope that people understood that joke because it was really, really nuanced and really, really baseball, but really, really good. And there's a deep drive to left field by Castellanos. <sighs> Do any of those moves, I guess Trevor's story goes to a contender, but I don't think of Philadelphia as a contender at this point. And I don't know if Castellanos like moves the needle for them in that way. Although good for him for getting a hundred million dollars. From what a lot of people are saying, mostly when you think about the Phillies is their offense is going to be designed to put up 10 to 15 runs. But the problem is they don't have a pitching staff that's going to keep that run total below that 10 to 15 run threshold. So they're going to be in a lot of shootouts this year. They're going to be in a lot of back and forth games. They're trying to just outscore every opponent. And well, I like the strategy. 
strategy? Well, like a dynamic offense in baseball, the death lineup that they're building out there, we haven't seen a lot of success with that really working out. At least in my history, at least in my lifetime, I have not seen a lot of teams go for that strategy. And it, it just seems a little bit inorganic in the same way you look at the Dodgers and their lineup. And while their lineup is truly a death lineup, it's all homegrown. The Phillies are doing it in a much different way. And I, I just kind of don't like it. I mean, again, Castellanos, fine piece. We're talking about a guy that finished 12th in MVP voting. We're talking about a guy that was an all-star, a silver slugger. But you're right. I, I don't know if this is necessarily the move. They also added Kyle Schwarber this year too. So that that's another piece that the yeah, Phillies are doing. That, they're, they're trying to build a good lineup this year. That was the thing I was about to say. Like, yeah, they're trying to do a death lineup. But like, is the lineup actually that good? Like, I'm, I'm trying to go through it in my head. Like, so obviously they have Gene Segura. They have Castellanos. They've got Schwarber. They've got Bryce Harper, who was obviously the MVP. But we know Bryce Harper goes fluctuates a lot in between seasons. But, you know, maybe maybe they'll get the best of the best Bryce Harper. And I guess Real Muto is still there. So I guess that's pretty good. Didi Gregorius will be a DH unless, you know, Schwarber's a DH. Again, the problem is start listing off their pitching staff. It's not good, man. I mean, I mean that Aaron Nola is pretty good, but you're right. Like it's, oh God, Kyle Gibson. Oh God. <laughs> oh, it's bad. Oh no. Kyle Gibson is their number two. That's and, terrible. And it's not just there. It's not just that they have a bad pitching staff. They also have a bad defensive lineup. Well, all these guys can hit. They're not great filters. <laughs> I, well, no, Kyle that's Schwarber's why that's going to be a DH, but you know, like even got the best of them, like Bryce Harper uh, is kind of declined in terms of his fielding in recent years. Gene Segura is not much of a defensive uh, shortstop either. Or but that, that's why I was saying like the Phillies don't feel like a contender. Like the original question was, which of these is the most, I guess story to Boston matters a lot. Like, I guess that's a big deal move because Boston did really need to get a shortstop slash second baseman to fill in there. So I guess that one does actually make a pretty big difference. I know Story's probably going to play second base because Xander Bogarts, but I, I guess that one makes a, a bit of a difference. Correa yeah. is so strange. Yeah, Correa. That, that one I think is the most interesting from the standpoint of the Twins. The Twins, I didn't think were really trying to do much this year. And they got Gary Sanchez. Uh, so their offense, they're, they're trying to build a bit of an offense together themselves. They're not building quite the death lineup that the Phillies are building, but they're trying to build a nice little offensive unit that again also suffers defensively. And the Twins at least benefit from being in a wide open AL Central. I, yes, I think the, the division so that I wish to disband. Yeah. Yes. yes, the White Sox, I think, are still my favorites, but the Twins, you get a guy like Correa, you get a guy like Sanchez. I, I think they've also made a couple smaller acquisitions before and after the MLB lockout. They're going to try and compete to win their division. Obviously, we get expanded playoffs this year. If you told me the Twins were a fringe playoff team, one of those surprise stories this year, I'd believe you. I think that they're making the moves to be that. Uh, Trevor Story, I will add on to what you're saying, though. What I'm going to be most intrigued with with Trevor Story is he's one of those Colorado guys, right? He's one of those guys that has home road splits. In fact, his home and away numbers, he is a 300 hitter at Coors. Away from Coors, he's a 241 hitter. His slugging percentage, almost 150 points below average when you consider his home road splits. And I will concede that the AL East does have some hitter-friendly ballparks, but you're not going to find anything as good as hitting at Coors. At least, you know, if you're talking advanced metrics, his Babbitt, so his batting average of balls in play, he is a 300 hitter in both categories. So maybe that's going to be more predictive of success. It just, you know, we kind of talk about this. Anytime you talk about a guy leaving Colorado, is he going to be closer to Arenado or is he going to be closer to Troy Tulwiski? Where is he going to fall in that? Well, yeah, but it's better than like Christian Arroyo, who I think is their starter at this point. So like that was kind of the big thing was like they had a huge need at second base. Sorry, Kike. I know Kike is kind of a utility guy, yeah, but yeah, they, well, okay. they, one of the big parts of their playoff run was offense, right? They were offensive 
driven team. Uh, in fact, when the Astros went against them, their back end of their rotation was never going to stop the Astros lineup. And it did it. And the only reason the Astros ended up losing the World Series last year, and that also goes into Carlos Correa, I think he slumped in the World Series last year. But the Astros faced their best pitching staff in the Atlanta Braves. The Boston Red Sox weren't that. And the Boston Red Sox came out of nowhere in the playoffs. Have they fixed their needs? Is Trevor Story really the difference between them being a team that slipped into the playoffs and made a run to the ALCS and a team that back to competing for a World Series out of the AAL? Well, well, no, but one player can't do Like Mike Trout can't change that for any single team. So like, it's just better than I guess the alternative for Boston, which is, you know, they, they were going to kind of have that little bottom of the order interchangeable piece between Kike and, you know, maybe Bobby Dahlbeck who had those, that one amazing month and then like kind of fell out of the, the lineup at the end. So I don't know, like Boston's kind of in this weird place that way. The twins one is funny. And I did want to talk about that here, which is Minnesota decided that we aren't good enough to win a world series, but we also don't want to tear it down and start all over again. And that's probably a good idea because as bad as Minnesota was last year, like the AL Central is just putrid. Like Kansas City's waiting for all the, the prospects to come up. The Tigers are getting better, presumably at this point. And Cleveland is now in the crapper trying to tank for the top pick. So I understand that point from Minnesota, which is we can get to the playoffs just by trying in Major League Baseball. You're already like the eighth best team in your league. Like just by actually giving a shit, you already become the eighth best team in your league because the Rangers are going to, I know the Rangers are trying to win, but they're not going to be good enough. Seattle's not going to, tr- I'm sorry, Oakland's not going to try and win. Seattle's now trying to win. I'm just so used to saying Seattle's not trying to win, but Oakland's going to stink. Texas is going to stink. The Tigers are still going to stink. Even though they're going to be better, they're still going to stink. The Royals are going to stink. Cleveland is going to stink and uh, Baltimore is going to stink. Yeah. It, I mean, it gets you into the conversation, which baseball can be weird sometimes. Like yeah. if you catch a hot streak, you can turn something around and Gary Sanchez makes you a better team. And Giovanni Urshela is worse than Don but not by much like Giovanni Urshela was really good in those few years with the Yankees and they've re-signed Byron Buxton. They tried to trade him at the deadline. Then they decided to give him an extension. So I think that was kind of the turning point for the twins was when they couldn't get what they wanted for Buxton. That's when they kind of pivoted and said, we're going to try and do really, really well at this point, even though they traded Jose Barrios at the deadline last year, but that was just because he was going to be a free agent at the end of the year. They went out there and acquired Sonny Gray. That was another move that I noticed from their free agent tracker. And Sonny Gray, he's such an interesting pitcher. Every time I think he's done and ready to be out of the league, he comes back and has a practically all-star season. So I, I never completely downplay Sonny Gray. He still has some stuff. He still has, obviously, some talent to keep around. But then you look at other guys on there, you know, guys like Dylan Bundy. I, I, I don't know. Again, you're right. They're probably just happy to be in the middle. If they win the AL Central, cool. And if you're a fan and you get to sell some tickets off Carlos Correa jerseys and Carlos Correa being your new shortstop, up. That's fine. A, a big thing about Carlos Correa getting this contract, which is interesting, three-year deal, $105 million, so short-term contract. And Carlos Correa is good. I think Carlos Correa is good. And I think he's one of my favorite players that's never been a San Francisco Giant, even though, damn it, Carlos, you should have been. 
You should have been a San Francisco Giant this year, but no, year, no they got there. Brandon Crawford, 36 yes. year old Brandon hey, Crawford. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Second base, people moving around. You talk about Trevor Story moving positions. He could have been our second baseman. That's fine. That's fine. Carlos Correa is going to be second base over Brandon Crawford. Get no, out of here. No. Brandon Crawford's our shortstop. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I was yeah. going to say Brandon Crawford's our shortstop. Carlos Correa to second. I could have lived well, with no, it. Brandon Crawford's moving to second base no, in that situation. No, no. Brandon <laughs> it's Carlos Crawford. Correa. Brandon Crawford is a magician. He is sensational. And have you seen that long hair flowing in the wind when he goes on a dive? It's like a gazelle just going through the safari. I don't understand how any of that happened last year. I've said it so many times. I don't understand how Brandon Crawford and Brandon Belt, who have been giants since I was born in 2001, somehow just miraculously at 58 and 52 years old, miraculously turned their career around. MVP, MVP. MVP. Throw Longo in the mix too. That didn't make any sense either. Okay. But anyways, to, to, yo, Car- yo, Longo, he should be long gone. Carlos, Carlos Correa. Correa. Yes. To the Finishing point, like, the point here. One one thing that concerns me and should concern the Twins. Carlos Correa in three of the last four non sixty game seasons has missed over fifty games. So he's not exactly a model of health. So the fact that he didn't go for a more long term contract is interesting for him. I wonder if anyone was offering him that six year to ten year deal and why Scott Boris decided to settle on this three-year contract. I know there's opt-outs. I know there's some weird inner workings. The fact that your player, your representative doesn't have a clean bill of health on a year-to-year basis, those are usually the guys that seek the more long-term deals. Those are the guys that usually are happy to still get paid $30 million a year in their age 38 season while also missing the majority of games. And the fact that Carlos Correa settled on a somewhat bet-on-yourself three-year deal surprised me. Well, so this is the effects of the MLB's salary cap. And I put salary cap in air quotes because it's a competitive balance luxury tax that essentially acts as a salary cap is that the teams that spent on free agents were teams 10 through 20 this year. In baseball, it's more like teams 8 to 16 because half the teams in baseball are tanking. But, you know, teams 10 to 20 were the ones who spent on free agents because the Yankees were out of the game. Well, the Red Sox were out of the game until they got Trevor Story, but the Cubs were essentially out of the game. The Nationals were out of the game in free agents. Uh, The Padres were out of the game in free agents, which it's weird to talk about the Padres as a big market team now, but it makes me feel good to say it. The Giants were out on Chris Bryant, even though Chris Bryant signed for like $30 million a yeah, year or something like know, that. And that too, that too, tying Chris Bryant into Carlos Correa to Scott Boris clients that signed with teams that we don't think as contenders. I, I thought both those guys would be more in trying to build out their legacy or on, in their latter half of their career, but kind of, I feel settled for these mid-tier teams that I don't see the light at the end of the tunnel for the twins of Rockies. Well, yeah, but this is about getting them to competitive. Like, so I think this is more long-term for the twins. Cause like, if I say the name Royce Lewis, do you know who I'm talking about? I can see if Google knows who you're talking about. Oh, darn. Well, that that defeats my point. But Royce Lewis is like a name that Twins fans know because he was the number one pick in the draft in 2017. And he's like been coming up slowly but steadily, but he's a top 30 prospect instead of a top prospect as the number one pick in the draft. But like they went through this process already. They went through the process of tearing it to the ground. They went through the process of being terrible. And so fans are going to invest in the players that are there and invest in the storylines. And yeah, maybe that'll get them a missed playoff spot 
spot this year, but they're hoping that if Royce Lewis comes up through the system or if Gregory Polanco becomes the player they were hoping for him to be, or Luis Arias turns into something, or Max Kepler becomes a perennial all-star, like they're hoping that that will then put them over the edge. All they're doing now is creating the supporting cast the same way Toronto did last offseason when they signed George Springer. I know the parallels of Springer and Correa are such, but it, it feels like they're following where Toronto was, which is we're about two years away. Like we're waiting for the White Sox to kind of hit the clapper a little bit, but we're like two years away. And so now we're like supplementing our team now for a push in 2023, which the alternative was they could have torn it all to the ground and tried again. But they're saying like, we're going to play the two-year game of just trying to get into the playoffs. And maybe at that 2023 deadline, we can trade for a bunch of people and we can try and make a push for the World Series because baseball playoffs are random. Uh, This seems to be kind of the place that they're in right now, which is we don't have the money to compete with these teams, but we have just enough good players to get in the mix. It's not like they're 100% good to go. Like, Like we said, they're probably like the sixth or seventh best team in the American League, but they're at least setting themselves up to try and go after a pretty shitty AL Central title. And that'll be easier for fans to invest in because at least it's going to be the same team for the next three years. Like at least it's still going to be the names they know and the names they've been rooting for for the last couple of years. It's still going to be Buxton, still going to be Polanco, still going to be Miguel Sano, still going to be those guys, even if they kind of had to like retool a little bit over the last couple of years. Even if it ends with the Twins getting swept in the first round like they always do, at least they're trying to get back there instead of saying, let's wait six years to get swept in the first round. Let's try and get swept in the first round right now. Like anytime the Twins make it to the postseason, it comes down to, are we going to have to head to New York? Are we going to get swept? Probably likely. Probably likely. And now starts the final quarter. Buckle up. Buckle up. This is the Slump Buster Podcast. Kyle dropped his latest NBA power rankings this past weekend, and the top 10 went as follows. At 10, the Boston Celtics. 9, Denver. 8, Utah. 7, the Brooklyn Nets. 6, Philadelphia. 5, the Miami Heat. 4, Memphis. 3, the Golden State Warriors. 2, the defending champion, Milwaukee Bucks. And at number 1 for the 5th straight update, the Phoenix Suns. As is the subjective nature of power rankings, not everyone agrees with Kyle's assessment. Joining us here today in proper slump buster debate, Cross Boudreau of the Off the Beat sports podcast cross thanks for joining us how are you doing today man good how are you thanks for having me very excited for this nice friendly debate nice friendly you know gloves are off but you know we're we're all going to come together at the end and we're all going to be smarter from it we're all going to be better from it first question i'm going to ask is going to be my co-host here so kyle you know cross may be new to your power rankings the audience that hasn't been maybe paying attention to power rankings might now not know your philosophy towards it what is your philosophy when you're making your power rankings well, this is uh, an interesting question because it's. I try to be as nuanced as possible. I try not to move people up or down too much week to week because I am a subscriber to the fact that the NBA regular season is not a good assessment of who the best teams in the league are because the format of playoff basketball is so much different than the regular season format. So this is an interesting part because Boston in the last like four weeks, I think went as low as like 17 at one point, And then they've jumped like 
like seven spots now to number 10. And I know Juju was bullying me a couple weeks ago because I had the Bulls at 11 and the Celtics at 12 and the audacity to keep Chicago over the Bulls when for the entire season, the Bulls were the one seed in the East. And I didn't really believe in the Bulls in the first place, but Chicago has finally fallen off and Boston, I think, as Cross mentioned, 21 and four in their last 25 games. Jason Tatum's averaging close to 30 points a game in the last four weeks. And in the last four weeks, Boston jumped about seven points. So I think the improvement there kind of reflects it. But I know that injuries are impossible because I assume that Kevin Durant will be back healthy in the playoffs. And so therefore Brooklyn should still be at the top, even though they're like eighth in the Eastern conference. But if you take that away, well then Brooklyn's going to free fall. So it's impossible to determine who's good or who's bad based on who's going to be available. Once you get deeper into the playoffs, because the, the Brooklyn nets and Miami heat and Philadelphia 76ers have all had crazy overturns of their roster this season. So I'm not quite sure if that answered the question, because there's not a great philosophy to all of this. But yeah, I try to do it just based on who the best teams are. If you stacked them up in a seven game series while taking into account who is pretty good in the regular season. Cross, do you take any issue with kind of like that approach to doing NBA power rankings? So first of all, Celtics are 24 and two in their last 26 games. But uh, second, I think power rankings are generally for the most part, they're a ranking of how a team is doing at that current time. And how hot they are at any given time when you're ranking in power rankings you, it's it's a regular season power rankings you're not saying all right this is where teams rank in the playoffs and how the, the reality is the nets kd was out he's back now and they're still not doing awesome Kyrie still can only play half the games so you got to play it by that reality like you could have that argument for the Celtics in the beginning of the season where half their team was out 90% of the time you could say like well the Celtics would be good if they had everyone, but the reality was they sucked because they didn't have everyone and they weren't playing up to their potential, but now they have everyone and they're playing up to their potential and they are sweeping like the league right now. Like you can't, you can't do it by potential because that's just an unending debate of like opinion. Cause you know, you don't know it's a, what if question that you can't be answered in, in the nets, the nets should be nowhere close to the top 10 right now. Are they are 38 and 34 in the eight seed in the East. They're six and four in their last 10, six and 19 in their last 25 games. They are on a cold streak. I mean, you, if you want to go the 10 games, they're doing okay. That's still almost 500. And that's with Katie and Kyrie uh, for the most part like Kyrie still has that problem. But, and as much as I hate Kyrie, I think they should be letting him play. I think that's kind of crappy, but that's a separate discussion, but like, you can't say, well, the playoffs is different because this is rankings. Power rankings are based on how, like how hot a team is during the season. And I just think if you get into that whole, what if debate and it's never going to end. Cross, um, so it sounds like the Nats and the Celtics are the two standouts here. Would you say those are your biggest disagreements in the rankings? I also I also disagree with the Nuggets being higher than them because we just blew them out at home and we are hot a hotter team right now. I, I also kind of disagree with the Sixers being that high just because we are like pretty much close to passing them in the, in the rankings. And like, we have a much better record than like they're six and four in their last 10 and 16 and nine in their last 25, while we're 24 and two in our last 26 and nine and one in our last 10, we just beat them by 48, like a few weeks ago. And they had Embiid. No team with Embiid should lose by 48. 
I mean, that's just embarrassing. I think I, I think that team shouldn't be a higher than them. Uh, the Nets. I mean, I think the Warriors should be definitely lower. I don't know if the Celtics should be above them, but the the Warriors have been pretty rough lately. Four and six in the last 10, 14, 11 in the last 25. They're on a three-game losing streak. Because I, I, I just think I when I think power rankings, and I think when most people think power rankings, it's based on recent success, how a team's playing. Like, and obviously, it's not going to be like, you play bad for like a week, you're going to drop like 10 spots in a thing. I mean, it should be progressively, they get lower and lower. Well, like the Celtics have been playing well for like two months now and have jumped like so much. I think in every power rankings I've seen, they've been at least top six. And I think that's where they fit generally. I haven't really been able to see the jazz all that much, but I think they've been like average. I don't think they've been doing anything crazy like the Celtics has. So I could see them ahead of them. I agree with the Suns, the Bucks. Although we beat the Grizzlies, I, I, I I'm fine with them up there because they're they're playing pretty well right now. Yeah. So I, I just think the Celtics are the hottest team in basketball. They're beating all these good teams. They beat the Warriors. I mean, although Steph got hurt, they were beating them pretty good before Steph got hurt. I just think you can't get into that whole what if game. And Kyle, your response? Yeah, I think the thing that I don't like power rankings in general. I just know that Juju has me fill them out altogether. But my objection has always been that doing the week to week, like rise and fall like that doesn't make people smarter sports fans because all of that is subject to change so quickly and small sample sizes aren't necessarily, I would argue, the best way to do evaluations. It's like how people go from like saying when... Sorry, that, but that's the argument with the power rankings. Power, that's what a power ranking is, is that. I mean, if you want to go rankings in the NBA, then you go by overall record and stuff like that. But sorry. Yeah, and I, I think that's probably where mine are closer towards, right? Like, I think that if you put Miami against Boston, I think both of those teams are pretty evenly matched. And if you do a one-game sample size of either team, well, it's a coin toss who's going to win, right? So by that logic, Miami and Boston would be essentially the same, which by the way, if I'm doing my tiers breakdown, which I like to do more so that we don't get into debates about whether the Jazz are the eighth or ninth best team in the league, uh, or the Bulls are 11th or 12th compared to the Celtics. Like, I think that that's kind of how you can find out whether or not like one team is better than the other. So then the tiebreaker there is to go to a seven game series. And I guess by that logic, I would say even with the great stretch, the Celtics are on and they're first in the defense, first in defensive rating in the league right now. And they only have two scores, but one of those scores is now averaging 27 a game and Jalen Brown scoring close to 20 a game or I think 24 a game. He's 24, 25 a game right now, actually. And that that's enough offense to get by, especially with a number one defense. And even with all that being said, I still think Brooklyn is a better team. I still think that the Sixers are a better team, but that's just because they have really talented players. And I know this is the whole argument everyone says about Jason Tatum is, will Jason Tatum become an MVP? And, you know, this is all really going to be hashed out in a playoff series, it would appear. Guy, let me ask you then, with that said, let's move into these next set of questions here. Are the Boston Celtics Eastern Conference contenders? Depends on your definition of contender. Contending because, for an Eastern Conference title. No, but the Boston Celtics are a team that I would say is in the tier that I call second round exit, which is that they expect to make it to the second round. If the Celtics can make it to the second round, then that is a a victory, I would argue, in this season, given where they were like a month ago or even two months ago, or even just having your best player be Jason Tatum. I think that they expect to make it to the second round. Now, the problem there is 
Miami also expects to make it to the second round. Philadelphia also expects to make it to the second round. Chicago could talk themselves into making it to the second round. I, I'm not sure where they stand anymore. And I'd argue Brooklyn and Milwaukee are the teams that are in the like championship contender tier only because they have Kevin Durant and Giannis Antetokounmpo. And if you have those two generational stars, you expect to be in the championship every single year. And so I think if Boston gets to a series against either one of those teams, it would be a victory. Now, Brooklyn's impossible to figure out because they're an eight seed and they might play Miami in the first round and it's all going to be really complex. But I think seeding in basketball is weird in that way too. But Milwaukee and Brooklyn both expect to be in the championship and the other teams kind of expect to get to a series where they lose to either Milwaukee or Brooklyn. Cross, your assessment of Kyle's assessment of the Celtics. I think the Celtics are definitely contenders to win the East. Right now with how they're playing, if this play keeps up, I mean, again, it's the what if thing, like you don't know, but like if this play keeps up, I don't see anybody beating the Celtics four times with how they're playing right now. I don't think Chicago can do it. I, I sure as hell don't think Chicago can do it. I think they are a team of losers. DeMar hasn't had any like postseason success in his career. He's had like regular season success, but he hasn't been able to do like anything in the postseason. The Nets aren't reliable right now. Even, even with Kyrie, I'm not sure. I don't think they have the pieces around them. I think losing Seth Curry was a huge loss. How about Miami? Because I could be I could be convinced on the Miami side. I know Miami, I was going to say, I played the game a couple of weeks ago of drafting players from the Heat and Celtics, and the Celtics might have the first two, but then Miami has the next six if you're mm-hmm. drafting people from the teams. Yeah, and that's the, Miami, they're good. They, they, they're good. They, they're the ones I fear the most in a seven-game series. More than uh, Milwaukee? Yeah, because I think, wow. I think with the the Heat, although my concern with that lie with the Heat is their offense. They're really good defensively, but can they produce enough points? Because if the Celtics are this good defensively, and they're that good defense, who who has the better offensive team? And I think the Celtics win that battle, like they eke it out a bit. But that's if the Celtics defense stays this hot, and that's if the Heat or and if the Heat can put together an offense at some point. I think they're a very dangerous team, and especially against these teams like Milwaukee and with the Celtics, I think Milwaukee, the only reason we ever lose to Milwaukee is because Chris Middleton like kills us for no apparent reason. Every time we play Milwaukee, Chris Middleton just goes off. And if we can contain him, like the thing with Giannis, he could go score 50, but if you're like playing great defense on the the other four guys on the court, like it's not going to matter. It's like the whole uh, game with the Suns like years ago, or was that 2017 where Devin Booker dropped 70 on us in lost if you can lock up everybody else on the court then you're not gonna have you're gonna be able to beat a team like no one player isn't going to beat you and uh I, i'm not worried about it sixers in this in a seven game series i i really they have not been able to fi- figure us out all that much i think with Embiid, like i don't i don't think hard harden is a career loser i don't think he, he, he hasn't done crap with his postseason career. I don't think Embiid can do anything either. He's a really good player. I, I actually like Embiid not playing the Celtics. But, like, I the only people I see beating us is maybe probably the Heat or the Bucks, And then in the post – or and then the, the championship, like, the, I think the Suns, Warriors, all of those teams could probably beat us in a seven-game series. I don't think we will win, but I think I think we can make it to the finals. As someone who's talked with Kyle a lot about his power rankings and how he kind of like used the NBA tier rankings as well, 
obviously it comes down to who the best player is Kyle pretty much like that's something that you kind of like factor in when you're doing your power rankings correct yes well yes and no yes and no for sure so for the Celtics that is Jason Tatum cross right here today where do you have Jason Tatum ranked in the NBA is he a top 10 player is he a top 15 player is he a top 20 player top 25 where do you assess that Jason Tatum is amongst the NBA elite that, that is definitely an interesting question. And as a Celtics fan, like I can be biased and say like, oh, he's like top eight, but like, you got to be real in a sense where I think he's, t- I think he's like top six in MVP voting. But like, then if you're talking about best players, like legitimately the best players and you get also get into the injury debate, but if you're going with just healthy players and best players, just like based on in general, I would say he's probably around 10 maybe even in the top 15 just because you got guys like Giannis LeBron Steph um I would even KD yeah KD I would even put Luca ahead of him um Embiid Embiid you got Embiid you got Jokic then you Kawhi uh, went healthy I'd put Kawhi Kawhi went healthy but if we're keeping out injured players because then I would also have like guys like uh Anthony Davis over him or maybe even Kyrie like as much as I hate Kyrie He's a very good player. Um, Dame Lillard. Dame Damian Lillard. But like right now in this year, he's he's probably top ten. I would say, and it, just with how crazy he's been playing. As much as I, I want to be like, yeah, he's top ten. But like you also got to think how he was playing in the beginning of the year. Twenty five points a game is not bad, but like you, but like watching him, it didn't feel like he was a twenty five points per game. Just watching those games, it didn't seem like he was like a top ten player just because they were losing so much. So like it is like as much as I would like to say I'm not using recency bias. It, it's just something that you like put that's just ingrained in your head when you're trying to make these decisions. But I would say he's probably top ten, like in like the lower half of those of that that list. Kyle, your response. So this is where tiers are incredibly helpful because you have generational stars, you have superstars, and then you have of all-stars so jason tatum's kind of in that like all-star group where i would the way i view i would say he's superstar if i was gonna go that way the way i mean so the last month is changing that because obviously he's still 24 and like other players will get older and he'll get better but basically he's just in the same place as i put donovan mitchell that's basically where i've had him at is like for this generation that he's in because he's kind of a tweener between the Giannis generation and what i like to call the luca zion type generation yeah like just by age and when he's going to hit his prime which is not now so he's kind of a tweener but if you want to say like the Giannis generation it's like Giannis. And then you have Embiid and Anthony Davis and Jokic as the superstars. And then Devin Booker, I'd also put there, but I'm I'm a big Devin Booker guy. And then below that would be like Donovan Mitchell and Jason Tatum and Paul George. I would say Tatum's Tatum's at least on Booker's level. And when I'm talking generational superstars, I would put LeBron and Giannis. I would even put Jokic and Embiid up there because those guys are great. No, it's just Giannis. It's just Giannis in that generation. And then the one before would be... Katie and Steph was like the generation before with like Russ and Harden and those guys below that. So like generational star is like only Giannis. You could argue Embiid, but I'll put only Giannis. Then below that, Jokic, Anthony Davis and Embiid. And then 
Devin Booker's kind of like a tweener too. And then right below that would be like Donovan Mitchell and Jason Tatum. I just have a hard time categorizing Tatum as all-star, especially since like he started in a couple games, obviously because of injuries, but I wouldn't say he's just like just an all-star. I would say he's a superstar. He's leading. Great he's someone, he's someone you would write in every single year as an all-star like Paul yeah. George or Jimmy Butler. You'd write him in on your all-star team every single season. Mm-hmm. All right, guys, let's end this on a amicable note. Let's talk about some agreements. Let's talk about some things that we can all agree on. First off, at 30 in the power rankings, the Rockets suck. We can all agree on that, right? Right? Yeah, I honestly no I feel like <laughs> the, the last 10 are all like kind of toss-ups. You can't really – it's hard to judge the worst. <laughs> they all are, all are terrible. It's a it's weird year. Like, it's kind of like who wants to be the worst, like – who do you want to put it those it's not really like it's it's kind of just like interpretive yeah. it's hard to, argue to be a millionaire yeah, yeah. <laughs> any, any big agreements up top that we didn't really talk about we talked about all the disagreements any big agreements up top? um i definitely think the suns are one um i would agree with the bucks being up there i think the warriors should be a little lower uh, just because of how that one's fair. I, I think there's just no one who slides below them because all those teams in the East below the Bucks feel like they're kind of all the same. So I don't really know how to adjust the Warriors other than Memphis, which feels a little premature. This is first I time do, I'll throw I in my opinion here. I, I think yeah. a lot of those top teams in the East are actually kind of getting looked on in a weird light compared to the West because we're so used to saying the Western Conference is better than the Eastern Conference. I think the paradigm is shift. I feel like the East is better than the West this year. Yeah, and I think mm-hmm. that's I think that's also why you get the records are lower, like or they're or they're worse in the East than they are in the West, just because I think those top teams have e- like not easier schedules, but like like easier schedules. I just think mm-hmm. like the or these these teams like the Heat and like the Bucks, they have to play like the Sixers, the Celtics, the Bulls, each other like. Cavs mm-hmm. like they have to play each other more than like those other teams so like yeah the, like the, the records are like the east close. is way more deep like yeah. both both conferences have top heavy like i think suns warriors nets bucks that's kind of like the teams who assume they're going to be in the championship and then the east has like the next five best teams or so i mean memphis yeah. is pretty good well, I'm not you got, but you got memphis. like the clippers who are eighth in the west no they wouldn't even be the 10th seed in the in the yeah. east like oh, he just hates the Clippers. That, that's something the, the Lakers. Here. The Lakers shouldn't even be in the playoffs. They are god awful this year, and I think. Well, they, yeah, now they're punting on the season, but they'll still sneak in the playoffs because Portland is also punting on the season. I, I I don't think they would. They would not even be. They would probably be the eleven or twelve seed in the East, like the Lakers. Yeah. Are, this is this is what i call um i've been calling it timberwolves syndrome which is there's no reason the timberwolves should be 10 games over 500 they just play seven crap teams in the western conference all the time and they get easy wins and one of those crap teams is the lakers (laughs) unfortunately you you also look at like divisions like i know like they don't really mean anything but like you play what is it like four you play each team in your division four times a year the celtics have to play the Sixers four times the raptors who are pretty pretty good this year four four times nets four times the the knicks who are like like they're struggling this year but they're still like a solid team we have to play them four times a year and then milwaukee ha- milwaukee chicago and cleveland all have to play each other four times a year and but like the jazz and or i guess the uh Golden State and Phoenix are in the same and they like have to play the Lakers and Clippers four times. But like you get you get the Grizzlies who have like the Mavericks and then the next best team is the Pelicans and then the Spurs like they play each other four times a year. Like those are like that's a much easier schedule than like say the Celtics who have to play the Nets four times, the Raptors and the Sixers four times. All right, Kyle, any closing thoughts? 
the Boston Celtics are the fifth best team in the Eastern Conference, and I can be convinced on fourth being Miami. But I do believe I know I know you dumped on Embiid a little bit. I do love Joel Embiid, and they miss Seth Curry a lot. But I think the fact that Joel Embiid can just average thirty-five a game for a playoff series is probably going to carry the carry the water for Philadelphia as long as they don't have a one in seven hundred and seventy-eight chance collapse like they did last year against the Hawks. Thanks again for hopping on with us, man. Uh, give us all the obligatory plugs. Where can we find your content? Learn more from you too. Like, you know, kind of like listen to your thoughts on some of these teams. All right. So uh, Instagram is uh, at offbeat underscore sports. Uh, check us out there. We put a lot of our content on Insta- or Instagram. That's kind of our main thing. But then we for our podcast, you can get them on YouTube. It's just offbeat sports. And then also on Spotify and Apple podcasts, uh, offbeat sports. And then if you want to, we've been trying to get a TikTok going. It's uh, I think it's just at offbeat sports. And we get, we're kind of trying to expand a little bit there, trying to broaden our horizon and gain a better following. Our main social media is uh, at Offbeat underscore sports on Instagram. So check us out there. Definitely understand the struggle of an independent creator. Well, guys, go ahead and check out all of Cross's content. You learned with us. You laughed with, you us. Laughed with us. Now it's time to do some deep thinking. Hashtag bust the slump with your weekly words of wisdom. This week, cleaned up my room, did my laundry, created a budget to pay down all this debt. I have a, for a degree I no longer am currently occupying. And it made me think about the importance of being organized, having a system. I found this quote from self-proclaimed professional organizer, Andrew Mellon. Being organized isn't about getting rid of everything you own or trying to become a different person. It's about living the way you live, but better. Over the last month, obviously we've organized the podcast. We've kind of like sharpened some things up and maybe I'm wrong, but I think it sounds better. I think it's better for the listeners. I certainly, if you are a listener, let us know. We'd like to hear your input. Kyle, any thoughts on the idea of just being more organized, more prepared? Organization is part of the infinite game. You can write a schedule, you can build a planner, and uh, sometimes you might only get 60% of it, but 60% is better than 0%. And should always just keep striving to be better. Strive to plan everything out, organize your day, and then accomplish 100% of the things you set out to do. I know I'm not very good at hitting those bars, but I've gotten better over the years, and then I've gotten worse, and then I've gotten better and it's constantly in flux. So time management will help you accomplish so many more things. It's amazing how much time you have in the day when you organize it. Whether it's an interview, diet, or any other aspect of your life, being organized can be incredibly rewarding. Speaking of organizing, why don't you organize us at the top of your podcast feed by hitting that subscribe button, by hitting that like, by hitting that notification bell, all those things to bring us to the top, guys. Go ahead, leave a five-star review, leave a like. Uh, go ahead and check us out at SLM Podcast on IG, SLM Bot on Twitter and TikTok. Uh, stay safe, happy, and healthy from Juju Talk Sports and Kyle Ledbetter. We will see you next time.